0: Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of September 17th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. By the way, I'd like to hear from you if you're listening. Of course, if you're not listening, you wouldn't be hearing this, so why would you send a note? Anyway, let me know where you are in the world. What you think of the format, the address, Bill.Blinn, B-L-I-N-N, at techbiter, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R dot com. That's bill.blin, B-L-I-N-N, B-L-I-N-N bill.blin, at techbiter, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R com. And if you're not listening, never mind. TV programs on your computer. That's a topic I touched on a week or so ago. I heard from Andy Markin this week. Andy's a guy out in Los Angeles, pretty smart guy, knows a lot about video, knows a lot about television, knows a lot about computers. Over 50% of homes with Internet access have high-speed Internet access. That means you can sort of get television on your computer. So far, it's slow, and at best, it's jerky. There hasn't been much content. And probably most users don't have a clue about how to get the content that is there, or how to watch it. But this is all making advertisers and network executives nervous. The future isn't here yet, but it's approaching. And it's probably closer than they'd like to think. According to Mark and consumer electronics manufacturers know that folks around the globe have gone digital. We've all got our MP3 players, computers for everybody in the family, there are home networks, and slowly we're adding HD television sets. But if we all migrate to television over the Internet, then they have to deal with MPEG-4 decoders, new formats, and sets that are really just large monitors. Sony, Matsushita, also better known as Panasonic, and a few others will be marketing Internet television sets next year. The younger people spend more time in front of their computers than in front of their televisions, I'm not exactly a younger person, but I certainly spend more time in front of the computer than in front of a television. younger daughter, Katie, an art school senior, usually has music playing from her Mac and a couple of IM conversations going. The occasional email sends her to YouTube or one of the other video sources to see a clip. And even I watch more TV on the computer than I do on TV. Now, that's not particularly difficult for me because I probably average less than 30 minutes of viewing TV per week. The world isn't all broadband yet, says Markin, but it is getting connected. Last year, 194 million households worldwide had broadband service. By 2010, that number will increase to 413 million, according to Instat. The U.S. may have the best Internet products, but we are still only number 12 in terms of high-speed connectivity. Iceland, South Korea are the two countries that lead the pack. Northern Europe has seven of the top ten slots. Markin says his kid is part of the increasingly connected generation, cell phone in one hand while listening to online music, IMing friends, surfing for class assignments, updating MySpace, and catching the latest on YouTube. And guess what, says Markin, he has no time for regular TV. If he wants a real show, he knows where this stuff online is. According to Online Publishers Association, he isn't alone. Arbitron reports the internet viewing has been increasing steadily in the U.S., 7% in 2004, 8% in 2005, 12% in 2006. Care to chart the slope of that line? Well, this brings me back to the discussion a few weeks ago about podcasting versus broadcasting. I talked about how much fun I was having with the podcast and about how website traffic has remained about constant. In fact, this past week it was a good bit higher than normal. And I talked about some of the advantages that podcasting offers. I missed one of the advantages. A listener wrote in and said that podcasts are better than broadcasts because they have a shelf life. He was listening to a report I had done a month or so earlier because he wanted to review the information. Try to do that with over-the-air broadcast. What worries the people in charge, says Markin, is that people who are viewing this stuff aren't just kids. That's certainly true of podcasts. Technology Corner was on WTVN Radio for more than 15 years. It's a station with an older demographic. I was a bit concerned about converting the show from broadcast to podcast, but I've heard from listeners, some of whom describe themselves as not very technologically literate, who have easily made the switch from over-the-air radio to on-demand podcasts. I suspect the same will be true for television. Nielsen research shows that about 13% of Internet TV viewers are in that 12 to 17 demo. About 7% are in the 18 to 24 range. 20% in the 25 to 34 range. And look at this, 55% are in that magic 35 to 64 demo. Advertisers just might become apoplectic. There's a parallel to online music, says Markin. Just as the online music created an opportunity for independent musicians, they found an eager market for music video webcasts. Clubs across the country are installing webcams to entertain the global online market. It's a great promotion for the clubs, for the bands, and it's also great for music lovers. He cites as an example, and there's a photo of this on the website, Gig, a club in Los Angeles, regularly video records unsigned bands for their showcase. As the online audience grows, you'll be certain that merchandising will follow, music video sales, club and group merchandise, even download song sales. The independents have a great opportunity here. But, of course, there are problems to overcome. The biggest problem, according to Markin, is just finding the show you want to see. There are thousands of shows out there and sort of like channel things on the Internet now. In a few years, there will be, Markin's technical term here, a gazillion Internet television channels around the globe. and Nobody's come up with a good online service TV guide Yet. Markin says his son sends us cryptic notes saying we should check out such and so, and that's exactly what Katie does with me. Every few days she'll email or more likely IM me with a list of must-see videos. Hollywood television producers are jumping under the bandwagon, if only out of defense. But, says Markin, it's the indies who have the potential and the power to change the control structure and even make some money along the way. Another problem that we still see is picture quality. It's not very good right now, and that's being pretty charitable. Markin says the quality is both understandable and acceptable at this stage of the technology's growth. Change is coming. Internet video has a huge upside, but it comes with a risk to the content owners that they could be cannibalizing their own present revenue streams. In the next few years, they'll simply be trying to survive. Expect the content providers to try ad-based, commercial-type systems and subscription-based systems. Google and Yahoo are getting folks trained in the one-to-one advertising model. Last year, it accounted for about $13 billion, or 4.6% of total media spending. By 2009, it'll probably be up to about 7.5% of the total. that would be about $22.3 billion. Sites like MySpace Videos, Yahoo Video Search, MSN Video Search, Google Video Search, AOL Video, and YouTube are already gaining huge audiences. If you are a content provider of any sort, if you are an independent musician, if any of this interests you, and you haven't yet read Chris Anderson's The Long Tail... It's all about marketing. You better read that. Soon. Why? Well, in the early 1960s, a group of kids in my neighborhood in a small town had a band. The band probably had a name. I have no idea what it was. The radio station in town was a daytime operation, meaning that it had to sign off at sunset. I pretended to work there, and station management was crazy enough to give me a key to the building. One night after the station had signed off, the band and I went to the station. They played. I pretended to be a recording engineer. The equipment was primitive, even by early 1960s standards. But the recording we created was good, or at least in my memory it was good. Maybe not stellar, but good. Good enough that people would have liked it if they could have heard it. But they couldn't. The Internet didn't exist in the 1960s, not even in someone's imagination. There were no personal computers, no peer-to-peer networking. Musicians who couldn't get signed by one of the major labels had no chance at all. That's all different today. Musicians can easily create their own CDs and sell them at concerts. For these bands, peer-to-peer file sharing is good because it'll bring people to their concerts. What's good for the indie bands and their listeners is bad for the big labels. Just as gigantic dinosaurs were unable to compete with smaller voracious mammals, those big labels will, eventually, lose out to the smaller, aggressive indies. HP continues to be in hot water. Have you been following that story? Spanish philosopher, essayist, poet, and novelist George Santayana wrote, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That was in Life of Reason from his book Common Sense. Both reason and common sense seem to be missing at HP these days, and possibly even a knowledge of history. Remember the Nixon administration? They tried to eliminate leaks in the early 1970s with a so-called plumber's unit that eventually spawned the Watergate mess, And that, finally, brought down the president. The nation should have learned that nobody is above the law. Not the president, certainly not the chairman of the board of a corporation. We are a society of laws. Those who transgress may do so successfully for a time, but not forever. Well, now it appears that the California Attorney General may be filing charges against the now former chairman of the board of HP and others. According to the San Jose Mercury News, Attorney General Bill Lockyer says that he believes there is sufficient evidence to indict people both within Hewlett-Packard and outside the company. HP is accused of illegally obtaining personal phone records of board members and nine journalists in an investigation of boardroom leaks. Okay, boardroom leaks are not a good thing. However, somewhere along the way, someone with a lot more intelligence than I have said two wrongs do not make a right. I remember the legendary HP, a company built from the ground up, starting in a garage, built on honesty, fair dealing, and top-notch engineering. Before any product was released to the public, those products were tested so that the company knew that even if customers abused the products, they would continue to work. Well, the world doesn't care much about that these days. All anyone seems to want is cheap. That's why stores such as Walmart are so successful. That's why companies apparently cannot be run the way HP once was. Reports suggest that HP Chair Patricia Dunn had knowledge in advance of the illegal actions. Emergency board meetings this past week resulted in her resignation. CEO Mark Hurd takes over as chairman when Dunn resigns, but that won't be until January. Between now and then, the investigation will continue, and not just at the state level. Now the House Committee on Energy and Commerce is asking for documents, and they could begin hearings. Odds and ends, or as Paul Harvey might say, potpourri. I encounter a lot of little oddities and anomalies in dealing with computers. No big surprise there. Individually, none of these would be much worth mentioning, but collectively, maybe they're worth a couple of minutes here. So I offer for your inspection an update that claims to have been installed before personal computers even existed. And also an example of what some people will consider Microsoftian pettiness. You may want to visit the website www.techbiter.com to take a look at this, but first a little background. Steve Jobs was born in February of 1955, so he would have been just a few months shy of 15 years old at the end of December 1969. Apple Computer was founded on April 1st, 1976, so it didn't exist in December of 1969. The Mozilla Firefox browser was released on November 9, 2004. It also did not exist in December of 1969. I wonder, then, how Firefox on my Apple computer registered an update that was installed on December 31, 1969. Perhaps Apple has perfected time travel, because this computer certainly didn't exist in 1969. Microsoft has been accused of being petty from time to time, The new version of Internet Explorer, that's version 7, the one that's currently out in release code form but hasn't actually been released just yet, offers MSN Search as its default search engine. Users who visit Google's website will be immediately offered the opportunity to switch. Google pops up a little dialog that says you can switch to Google if you run this little application. I would prefer not to run that little application because it might be interpreted by my anti-hijack software as a security problem. In any event, I like to make changes like this manually, so I didn't run Google's program to make the switch. Instead, I went to the search toolbar and selected Change Search Defaults. When you do that, Microsoft opens a page of possible search engines. To make the change, all you have to do is find the logo of the search engine you want to use and click it. The only problem is that I wasn't able to see a Google logo. The reason I wasn't able to see it is it isn't there. Uh, there's a logo for AOL. There's one for Ask. Lycos is there. MSN is there. Yahoo. About. Amazon. Even Best Buy and Target are there. Wikipedia is there. Shopzilla is there. MTV and Overstock is there. But 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 no Google. Just the word. Google. No logo. Now, I have to point out that Microsoft seems to have admitted the logo for Microsoft, too. That's why I consider the omission to be more one of absent mindedness than pettiness, and there's no Walmart either, although there is a Target, and a weather, and a USA Today. In nerdly news, Firefox is more secure, they say. Well, don't bet on it. Mozilla has just released an update to Firefox that addresses seven security flaws, some of which are serious. If you're a Firefox user and you haven't installed the new version, now would be a good time to do so. Firefox 1.5.0.7. These numbers are getting longer. The version eliminates a flaw that might allow rogue website to run code on your computer. Of the seven vulnerabilities fixed, Mozilla rates four as critical. Patches eliminate known vulnerabilities that would allow websites to circumvent security in several ways via, for example, an RSA signature forgery flaw and by using cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. Gee, that all sounds like stuff that Microsoft wrestled with. Whether your preferred browser is IE, Firefox, Opera, or something else, it is important to make sure that you're always running the latest version, the one that has addressed all known security problems. Break out the birthday cake. It is the 50th birthday of the hard drive. How many hard drives are in your house? I looked around here and I think I counted them all. Katie's Mac has two internal drives. My desktop system has two internal drives, two external drives, and a network attached storage drive. I also have a notebook computer with a single hard drive, so that's nine hard drives in the house. Capacity more than a terabyte overall. Every one of those drives, every one of them is thousands of times larger and the first hard drive introduced in September 1956. IBM at that time released the RAMAC, which stood for Random Access Method of Accounting and Control. The thing had 50 24-inch platters that stored a couple of megabytes worth of data in a housing the size of a refrigerator, a big refrigerator, a commercial refrigerator, in fact. Today, you get thousands of times the amount of storage on a single platter drive that's only an inch wide and less than an inch tall. Al Shugart was an IBM field engineer in those days. Eventually, he left IBM and founded the company that became Seagate Technology, a company that's still around today. Fifty years ago, five megabytes of storage weighed a ton. Today, two gigabytes of solid-state storage weighs less than an ounce. By the time the IBM XT computer was released, it was possible to cram all of 10 megabytes of data into a drive that was less than six inches wide and only about four inches tall. Today's hard drives are as small as an inch wide, less than a quarter of an inch tall. The more common two and a half inch platters can easily store 10 to 80 gigabytes of data. Now, if the auto industry had similar accomplishments, today's cars would get more than 60,000 miles per gallon of gas. But, old joke alert, they would, of course, crash twice a day. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. This has been Technology Corner for the week of September seventeenth, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, com. And if you like, you can send email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.